everybody. I would like to welcome you back to STEM in a Nutshell. You know, uh, I'm your host, Timber, and I kind of took a bit of a hiatus. You know, I was focusing on some other life things, and I absolutely love everything about science, but having the podcast focus and run solely on the fact that I am interviewing somebody wasn't what I wanted. Period. I, I mean, I loved it. I loved the guests that I had on. I have a lot of science friends and I just love talking to them all the time about what they're doing. Um, but I like to have a little more freedom with this podcast and ooh, boy, did I really go over on times on the episodes. Yeah, that was a, those times were pretty long on there. Whoops, a daisies on that one. So I'm going to reel back a bit. I'm still going to talk about a bunch of different science topics and I will bring on guests. It's not going to be only guests, but I will bring them on from time to time. Of course, I love to have that banter, especially Tiffany, if you noticed, uh, Timber and Tiffany. <laughs> so this is just going to be a little bit of an introduction of how I want it to go from now on. It'll be mostly me talking about different things. Um, I'd also really love to talk from time to time about bad science or um, how people have turned some solid science into conspiracies, you know, a little bit of debunking because science is obviously not all rainbows and sunshine, right? There's a lot of things that have happened with it and continue to happen with it that are less than stellar. Uh, and if you know me, I really love space, so I'm probably going to say stupid things like stellar a lot. Apologies in advance. But anyway, yeah, so that's what it's going to be from the future. Um, and if you're listening to this on the audio, whether it's on Google Podcasts, uh, Anchor, which is just part of Spotify, and then Spotify, I'm still going to upload everything on to the YouTube channel. That's going to be the primary focus because from time to time, I'm going to make sure to put graphics in there to help explain what I'm talking about. And if you're listening to audio, I will let you know if there's a graphic I'm talking about, of course. So make sure you follow on YouTube and then for, you know, really up to date things, um, when I'm going to be dropping a new episode, go ahead and follow on my Twitter as well. It's just under STEM in a nutshell. So I hope you'll continue to listen. I hope you will learn something. If you ever think, wow, there's this really cool topic I heard of, but I would like somebody to research it a little bit better. Let me know and I will totally do an episode on that. So without further ado, I thought we could talk just a little bit about one of the coolest developments in the world of space. Nope, not talking about SpaceX. Mm -mm, nope, none of that. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the James Webb's James Webb Space Telescope. JWST. It's actually really cool. So if you know or you don't know, this thing has been in development for years and years back when I was in community college about 10 years ago, this was being talked about. And it was even development before that. So, you know, it took a long time to get here, but it finally launched uh, December 25th of 2021. You know, Merry Christmas to everybody. That was fantastic. We are now at the start of June and this thing is 
up there in place right now, just waiting for a little bit of uh, instrument calibration with it, making sure everything's right. And then next month we should, assuming everything goes to plan, you know, we should be seeing some stuff. It'll be really, really awesome. So just a little bit of background on why, I'm sure some people say, why do we need another telescope when we have Hubble? Well, Hubble and James Webb are two different types of telescopes. Uh, the Webb, I'm just going to call it Webb instead of, you know, the entire thing. So it's Webb and Hubble. Webb is merely looking at the universe in infrared, but it's also going to be a little bit of the visible spectrum in the red and yellow ranges. Whereas Hubble is primarily an optical telescope, but it does see ultraviolet um, and a teeny little bit of uh, infrared. It doesn't have the big infrared capabilities that Webb is going to have. So that's going to be really cool. Uh, one of the other differences between the two, if you noticed, if you've ever seen, you know, pictures of Webb, it has these huge gold mirrors. I mean, they're huge. Each one is uh, 4.3 feet in diameter for all the metric users, which is the much more sane measurement out there. It's 1.32 meters. And there's 18 of them. They're hexagonal mirrors, and they'll all fold together. And then as it go went up there, the mirrors unfolded and were locked into place. And so it gives it, what, 18 across? 18. So the full diameter from all the mirrors in place is 21.3 feet. It's huge. Absolutely huge. And then Hubble, the Hubble mirror is only, only 2.4 meters in diameter which is 7.87 feet across, so 21.3 feet, 7.8, yeah. Yeah, it's three times bigger, roughly, roughly, roughly. So one of the things with uh, infrared observations being so important to astronomy is that sometimes, you know, the planets are hiding behind a star or the stars in the planets are in... Um, big dusty areas you call it space dust but that dust really absorbs the visible light and so when we use that infrared we can get past that to see where they're hiding in there if you look at the Kuiper belt uh, there's a lot of space dust and rock in there and when people talk about space dust it's just um, really really fine particles of either organic compounds it might be rock, uh, ice, you know, different things like that, and smaller, smaller than sand. Really cool. I am very excited, you know. And, you know, one thing I really want to do with this is be able to break down jargon just a little bit. Um, over, you know, the last so many months, reading articles and hearing other science communicators talk about the web, to these web telescopes. Not the internet. Talking about web, they keep talking about it being at the L2 point. And I know people are not going to know what the heck the L2 point is. And then they might say, well, it's the Lagrange 2 point. Okay, what the heck is the Lagrange 2 point? I have the math and physics background. So, Lagrange, the L2, it, it's just a point 
between two objects. So they're talking about the L2 Sun Earth. That's one million miles away from Earth between Earth and the Sun. So it's going to be almost in a locked position there. It will have to be recalibrated every, I think it's 23 days. It should mostly stay at that point. So it's ideal for astronomy because, like I said, it's locked there roughly with calibration. Um, it's close enough to communicate with us on Earth to run experiments. And by putting it there, we are keeping the sun, the Earth, and the moon behind it. So it's going to have this big solar shield uh, on the web. And because of that solar shield, it's going to block everything behind it. So sun, Mercury, Venus, Earth, the moon, all, all of that is going to be behind. You're not going to see that. Web is going to look at everything outward from that. And just to mention a little bit more about the Lagrange point, I mean, this is not something that you're, even in your high school math, you're going to talk about this. This is, you know, a little more advanced. Um, but the way that an object stays between, you know, the two bigger objects. So here, the web between the sun and earth. It's the gravitational pull of the two objects. And it's keeping the web there based on a balance between the two. You know, minus the little calibration every 23 days. But it is a balancing act. Kind of like being on a seesaw, you know? And so when the large mass is precisely equal, the centripetal force required for a small object to move between them, that allows it to stay. So that locking point of being at the Lagrange point allows a spacecraft to reduce its fuel consumption because it's able to stay in that position relatively easier being between the two gravitational poles. And then I mentioned the centripetal force, just so you know, the centripetal force is when you know, a force, it's a force that acts on a body moving in a circular path. And then that force is directed towards the center. So let's say this is going to be really, really silly. But let's say you have a pole. And then like a tetherball, if anybody is old enough to remember what tetherball is, you have a rope and then a ball at the end. And you throw that ball, it's connected to the pole, and it moves in a circle around. The centripetal force is wanting to pull that ball inward towards the pole, towards that center point. Just so you know. One of the really cool things about the James Webb telescope is it's going to see even further back in time than Hubble. Now, think about that. And this will be where I have a little graphic, um, courtesy of NASA for this. But... Hubble can see, you know, some of the first galaxies out there. James Webb is going to look further than that. They're going to look at the development of the very first stars, uh, the infant stars, I believe they call them. So the thought behind this is, you know, the further back in time we see, because of the speed of light, the further away an object is. So we only see light coming to us through space because it has been traveling for so long. So, so seeing newborn galaxies is really important. Um, 
because we know that the universe is expanding, galaxies are moving away from one another, and they're red shifting, which means the light is stretching out. And when we say we see a red shift, it's the light moving away from us. So we can actually calculate that. And we should see something like 13 and a half billion years in the past. We might even be able to see as far back as a hundred million years after the Big Bang. You know, it's, um, we will see what Webb can see once experiments start going. If you are a space nerd, you'll know that there's the Herschel telescope, which is also out at the L2, again, the Lagrange 2 point, which is actually launched by the European Space Agency. They're going to be complementary of each other, but there is a difference between the two. The web measures the wavelengths from 0.6 to 28.5 microns. It's just um, very, very small, very small measurements of the wavelength. And then the Herschel measures 60 to 500 microns. So between the two of them, they are seeing a very, very large uh, span of the wavelengths of light. Webb also, as we know, has a huge mirror. The Herschel is three and a half meters. Again, the Webb is about six and a half meters. So that allows more light to come in to see further back. And because of that, because of how more advanced Webb is in its capabilities, it's going to be able to see really cool phenomenon like the formation of protostars or being able to see galaxies that are really, really far off can't see otherwise. One of the other differences between their wavelength ranges is the different goals for each telescope. Herschel looks for the extremes, um, and by that just saying the most active star-forming galaxies, they're going to emit most of their energy in the far infrared range, whereas Webb We'll find the first galaxies to form in the early universe, and it needs to be really, really sensitive in the near-infrared range for that. Now, I know one of the things that people love about space, and I love it too, I mean, science fiction, hello. One of the main uses of the Webb telescope will be to study the atmospheres of exoplanets, and they're looking for the building blocks of life elsewhere in the universe, because that's what we want, right? We want to know, are we alone? That is the big question out there. Not going to talk about that a whole lot of this episode, but, you know, maybe the next one we'll talk a little bit more about uh, extraterrestrial life and its various forms that we hope to see. Anyway, one method James Webb will use for studying exoplanets is the transit method. And that just means it's looking for the dimming of light from a star as a planet around that star passes between us and the star. So if you hold your hand out in front of you with your arm stretched out and you held a pencil and you had the pencil go on the furthest side of your hand so you can't see the pencil and then you bring it all the way back around and now it's in between your hand and your face. That's a transit as the planet crosses us being able to see that. And so what it's looking for is um, just 
being able to see atmospheric conditions, Webb will have uh, spectroscopy capabilities on it. So spectroscopy is just the science of measuring the intensity of light at different wavelengths. You know, we have infrared, we have the visible spectrum, which is a lot of different colors. We have uh, ultraviolet. But when you use that spectroscopy to see atmospheric composition, I know people probably think, well, how do you know, you know, what the atmospheric composition is? And I'm super happy you asked that. Uh, we look for the absorption lines. So we know certain elements have different absorption lines on the visible light spectrum. So like we could see sodium. We could tell that there's sodium in, for example, in the atmosphere because on an absorption spectrum where I will show you a lovely little infographic on the YouTube again for this. It's going to have like a blackout bar on it, if you can visualize that. And that'll say at this wavelength, we know that blackout means that it is sodium versus another element, which is pretty cool, you know? To give you an example, the web is going to be studying two rocky super Earths. One of them is, I don't know, naming conventions are something, but one of them is 55 Cancery E. So it orbits the star Copernicus, which is 41 light years away. So one light year, I know it's a really, really big number, and it's really hard to visualize it, incredibly hard. But in Earth terms, one light year is 5.88 trillion miles away. That's a trillion, which is 9.46 trillion kilometers away. Anyway, so back to 55 Cancer E. It's around Copernicus, the star. Um, it is a super Earth. It's supposed to be hot and covered in lava from what we know so far of it. It's tidally locked. And when I say it's tidally locked, that just means it's in a fixed position rotating. So like our moon is tidally locked to us. We always see the one side of the moon and one side is always dark. So one side of 55 Cancery is always going to be super, super hot. And the other, it's really close. So it's still going to be hot, but the other side will always be dark. And this Earth is uh, bigger in radius than ours, so bigger in diameter. And its mass is almost eight times that of Earth. Like it is a huge, huge, rocky, hot planet. But the cool thing about it is, it's super close to the sun. It orbits in about 18 hours around the sun. That's wild. That's wild. It's really, really close. And then one of the other super Earths that we are going to look at with the James Webb is called LHS 3844b. There's far too many little planets and stuff out there to give them all names other than their designated scientific names. But this one is also a rocky super-Earth, um, also hot, and it's like two and a quarter the mass of Earth, and like one, a little over 1.3, I think, times the radius of Earth. So it's it's not a whole lot bigger than us, but it is bigger. And still hot, like I said, but the star that it orbits is... Uh, not as big as the Cancery planet. So it's not as hot. It's still hot, 
but not as hot. And this one also has a really, really short orbital period. The other one was 18 hours. This orbital period is half of an Earth day. It's 12 hours that it takes for this to go around. So that thing is close and is just flying by. Yeah, those are two two of the planets that right now it's going to look. And I, I will post, you know, some really cool infographs in the YouTube. But I am also in the YouTube, I will put some links to the NASA website that can tell you a little bit more about these planets. So trailing off, you know, getting close to that mark on the episode, but this, the James Webb is supposed to last about five and a half years at the minimum, and they expect it to last up to 10 years, but recently the scientists have said it's likely going to be longer than 10 years that's going to be out there. Because unlike Hubble, this one, the web is so far out there, we can't send, you know, the space shuttle, we can't send people to go fix it if something goes wrong. So it's just out there doing its thing until at some point it lights go off. And like I said, at the start of the episode, the James Webb Space Telescope is up there. It's being calibrated right now, making sure everything is going to run right. And as long as everything is going right, we are going to see the first full color images and the spectroscopic data in the middle of July this year. How cool is that? I expect to see really amazing things from this. And what's cool about this is its ability to see deep space because that solar shield is blocking the sun behind it. We can use the information that the Webb telescope tells us in partnership with other telescopes like radio scopes. you've learned a little bit more about the James Webb Space Telescope. There is so much information out there about it, so many resources. Um, I would say go to NASA, the NASA website. It's amazing. They have anything and everything you could want to know, and I know from personal experience, if you want to talk to one of the scientists at NASA, just hop on social media. They are more than happy to answer any questions for you. So reach out to them, um, and like I said, I will post some links in the YouTube. So wherever you might be viewing this, I hope you'll enjoy it. Give it a thumbs up or whatever there is out there, and catch you on the next one. Thank you for tuning back in to STEM in a Nutshell.